Hi, it's Kasai and Dominic. Before we start, we want to make a note about this episode of the podcast. We're going to talk about eugenics, which, as you'll hear, is an outdated set of beliefs that aim to improve the genetic quality of human populations and, by extension, uplift society. We are discussing eugenics today because it's a subject connected to the famous Five Centre for Canadian Women and is something we often receive questions about in that building. As a museum, it is our job to explore the good and the bad of the past. It is important that we do not shy away from discussing difficult subjects. Nellie McClung, Irene Perlby, Henrietta Muir Edwards, Louise McKinney, and Emily Murphy all use some tenets of eugenic principles to back up their work. This does not lessen what they achieved, but it's important that we take some time to understand what eugenics was so that we can more fully understand the complexity of history and the people who came before us. Some of the topics we covered in this episode may be hard to hear. So we want to urge you to take care when listening. Now, on to the podcast. Welcome to Stories from the Park, a Heritage Park podcast. Heritage Park is located on Treaty 7 land in Calgary, Alberta, a place where visitors come to learn about the history of all those who have gathered here and where Indigenous people proudly share cultural traditions and tell stories about their rich heritage, history, and attachment to the land. Joining us to talk about the history of eugenics today is Dr. Erna Kerbakovich. Hi, Erna. Thanks for doing this. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. We're really glad to have you here today to talk with us about the subject of eugenics and a little bit about the famous five and their relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Erna, why don't you tell us, I guess, first off, so that we can get kind of a baseline, what is or how is eugenics defined? And I guess, where kind of did this idea originate from? Right. So eugenics, the term comes from uh, Greek meaning well-bred. And it was coined in its modern sense um, by British statistician uh, Francis Galton in 1883. So the concept of manipulating uh, breeding had had been around before Galton's time. So for example... Um, Humans had been breeding plants and animals for thousands of years, Um, but Galton takes these ideas um, and tried to make eugenics a science and described it as the science of improving stock. So in other words, improving humans. Galton believed that um, an individual's mental and moral characteristics um, were inherited and any attempt at... um, Reforming their environment would not really work um, because you could not improve these characteristics, essentially. So um, for him, um, to ensure that only those with superior heredity passed on their favorable traits, Galton advocated that they should have children. And this is what we call positive eugenics. Um, while those with flawed heredity um, should be restricted from reproducing. And we call this negative eugenics. Eugenics was also a social movement. Uh, that emerged in Britain in response to the social conditions um, over concerns of supposed biological decline. Um, But these ideas of improving um, humanity were kind of popular all over the world um, at the turn of the 20th century. And then the wider context here, of course, is that there is greater government intervention um, in the health of populations starting in the 19th century Nation states viewed their people as citizens who are the resources of the state. 
Um, and there was sort of a greater political and social incentive to improve the nation's health and well-being. So eugenics in many ways offered um, a potential solution to anxieties uh, people had over conditions of modernity due to urbanization, industrialization, um, impacts of war, um, et cetera. Okay, so it's it's got a long history, um, but you mentioned this relationship with the state, um, and I was thinking in the Canadian context, kind of how accepted were the ideas of eugenics around Canadian in, uh, in Canada in the, in the uh, government and with the society in general? So they were quite popular. Um, eugenic ideas were quite popular in Canada. Um, so they uh, reached a peak or eugenics reaches a peak kind of in the 1920s and 1930s um, here. And eugenic policies and laws were implemented in um, two Canadian provinces with Alberta introducing a sexual sterilization act in 1928 and British Columbia following in 1933. Um, this, of course, doesn't mean that other provinces were not um, trying to follow in the footsteps of Alberta and British Columbia. It's just that due to a number of complex reasons, these campaigns never really materialized. Um, eugenics was supported by many um, middle class Canadians, including social reformers, first wave feminists, uh, medical professionals and politicians. And and it was basically because they believed that it was scientific and progressive and that it would improve humanity. Um, for them, uh, eugenics also was a way to explain many of Canada's social problems, including poverty, crime, um, criminality. Um, and then we sort of see at the turn of the century um, with increased immigration, World War One, the Great Depression, um, these prominent individuals became concerned about what they termed as mental deficiency and feeble-mindedness. Um, and a number of, this was primarily um, promoted by uh, psychiatrists and by physicians. So to assess the mental health status of, of Canadians, uh, Canadian psychiatrists Clarence Hinks and C.K. Clark founded the Canadian National Committee for Mental Hygiene in 1918. Um, and this committee had an extensive mandate. It was interested in um, um, in mental well-being of, of soldiers who had returned home from war, but it was also interested in combating mental deficiency and in fighting crime and prostitution. And the committee can conducted provincial surveys across Canada to assess um, the well-being of the provinces, and its conclusions were primarily negative. So um, it found that there was a rise of what they called mental deficiency and feeble-mindedness in, uh, in uh, mental institutions, mental institutions, and of course, these ideas that these findings find a very receptive audience um, in Alberta, especially. Was there a, set of, a kind of a set guideline that this or was it you know in in scientific I guess or how you say science right and how right, they, yeah. they make this into a science but was there like a set this is yes and this is no or was it kind of up to the person who was doing this kind of assessment um you mean um in terms of who would be classified correct yeah so um 
Not really. I mean, when we talk about um, mental deficiency or feeble-mindedness, these were very broad. Um, scholars have described them as catch-all terms. They were very broad, very imprecise. So it was essentially a way to group a vast number of marginalized individuals um, in, in under this label of feeble-minded or uh, mentally deficient. So when you mentioned that uh, Alberta especially, I guess, uh, kind of latched mm -hmm. on to these kind of ideas and, and BC then followed with its own in, in the legislative sense. Why do you think that people latched on to them? What, what made them appealing to them? In Alberta in particular, um, in the 1920s, there is there's economic downturn. People are a bit concerned about, um, you know, about their livelihoods. Um, that is then coupled with increased immigration to the province, and there is a rise of nativist um, sentiment. So this really creates ripe conditions in Alberta, particularly for the rise of eugenics. Alberta's um, mental health care system was also not very well developed compared to other provinces. Um, it's at this point, it only had one institution, so the Padoka Mental Hospital. Um, and that was being overcrowded. It was sending its patients kind of to other parts of Canada. Um, and then Alberta is also kind of watching what's happening in the U.S., so they, they are very much influenced by what's happening in California, by the sexual sterilization legislation there um, from 1909. And this would later become a model for Alberta's own um, eugenics program. And then, of course, th this idea of, of it being progressive, right? They, they believed that it offered a possibility for a better society based on the best available science. So... Um, and then, of course, there's that fear, which I've sort of um, hinted at, the fear of, of new immigrants, the fear of um, national decline um, as a result. So, How are people in the 20th century using eugenics besides just um, informing legislation like the Sexual Sterilization Act? Mm -hmm. One of the ways um, where we think about uh, eugenics would be through... Um, segregation, so segregation in mental institutions for eugenic reasons. Um, so initially, individuals who they who eugenicists would call mentally defective were segregated in institutions to ensure that they did not uh, reproduce. Um, but soon this wasn't good enough, and eugenicists started to call for tougher um, measures. Um, they argued that institutions were becoming overcrowded, um, the cost to run them was draining um, provincial resources, and more stricter measures like uh, sterilization were necessary to ensure that these individuals did not pass on their genes to future generations. So that was one way. The other was to support immigration restrictions. So um, like I mentioned um during the late 19th, early 20th century, there was an influx of new immigrants to the prairie provinces, um, primarily from Eastern Europe. And this changed the makeup of uh, those provinces and led to increasing anxiety among dominant Anglo-Canadians um, about national degeneration and then contributed to popular support for eugenic programs and, of course, to call for immigration restrictions. Um, I mentioned the um, the Canadian National Committee for Mental Hygiene, and their their findings suggested that new immigrants were overrepresented in institutions, 
Um, so, and that they tended to suffer from quote unquote feeble mindedness. Um, so people started to really criticize the Canadian government for its immigration policy um, and argued that its medical inspections were not adequate um, because they were letting in um, undesirable immigrants. Um, it's interesting because the Immigration Act underwent revisions in 1906 and 1910 to prohibit entry to anyone who was, uh, you know, seen medically unfit, uh, mentally or physically disabled, destitute. Um, but for eugenicists, this wasn't good enough. Um, they wanted uh, more thorough medical inspections performed at the country of origin rather than when those um, individuals already landed in Canada. So those were kind of the two other ways other than um, a sexual sterilization that eugenics kind of manifested itself in, in policies. So we know that the support for this was, you know, across kind of across the spectrum, but you talk about progressives, mm -hmm. socialists, uh, farmers, um, you know, we've read about many kind of Anglo-Saxon Protestants believe that, you know, especially in Western Canada, that you can produce like an ideal society, as you were saying, by reducing fertility. But we're often asked here at the park about a group of women who would be known as uh, feminists and and the, and the famous five, uh, Irene Perlby, Nellie McClung, Henrietta Muir Edwards, Emily Murphy, and Louise McKinney, uh, and their connection to um, eugenic uh, principles and, and and practices. So, how were these women, you know, involved uh, in using or or promoting eugenic principles in Western Canada? So, all of these women were passionate supporters of eugenics, um, particularly Emily Murphy, Nellie McClung, and Irene Parlby, um, and. Like many social reformers of their time, the famous five were what we call maternal feminists. So they believed that in their role as mothers, uh, that they were particularly suited in bettering um, society through social reform. Um, and McClung and Murphy uh, believed that it was a woman's duty to ensure the success of future generations. Um, women were seen as mothers of the race. Um, whose duty was to have children and um, ensure the survival of the Anglo-Saxon race. And of course, this was only reserved for some women. Um, it, it's a bit complicated. Only upper middle class women of superior backgrounds um, could be the mothers of the race. Um, women, working women and poor women um, could not. Um, so their interests in, um, in social improvement um, uh, particularly in areas of health, um, linked these women to the eugenics movement, which tended to share similar goals. Um, and women's organizations and eugenics were intertwined and complemented one another's beliefs um, in human betterment and social reform and um, in biological solutions to social problems. So I think given this overlap, it's not surprising that the famous five also supported eugenics. Um, for example, uh, Murphy in her work as a magistrate um, in Alberta uh, reviewed insanity cases before those individuals were transferred to, um, to Panoka Mental Hospital. And in her work, um, she saw a connection between quote unquote insanity and social ills, including alcoholism, poverty, and 
um, uh, crime, and she thought that insanity led to all of these um, social ills. So um, together with McClung and Parlby, she played a significant role um, in advocating for sexual sterilization in Alberta um, and thought that um, the public needed to be made aware of the threat posed by those deemed to be mentally deficient. Um, she was also a, a contributor um, to local newspapers um, where she called for sterilization, claiming that those who were insane were not entitled to children. Um, similarly, um, uh, Murphy conducted lecture tours together with a British political activist and suffragist Emmeline Pankhurst, uh, where she addressed several issues, um, including the supposed increase of insanity and female-mindedness in Alberta. And these lectures essentially served as a vehicle to spread the eugenic message and garner support for eugenic measures across Canada, um, especially across the Prairie provinces. So, um, McClung uh, was particularly um, uh, interested in advocating for sterilization for um, feeble-minded girls. So um, she believed in sort of um, in humanitarian reasons. So to protect these young women from pregnancy and the burden of, um, of uh, parenthood. And then um, Louise McKinney, um, it's unclear what... Um, what her position on sexual sterilization was, but we do know that um, she was a supporter of immigration restrictions to prevent undesirable immigrants from um, entering Canada. Um, and then um, Henrietta Muir Edwards um, supported both sterilization and um, immigration restrictions. Um, uh, Parlby, um, who was the first president of the United Farm Women of Alberta and the first First female cabinet minister, she was particularly interested in matters um, of, of relating to women and children. Um, and I think it's important to note that under her leadership, um, the United Farm Women of Alberta successfully lobbied the provincial government for a number of health-related uh, policies, including training for public health nurses, um, school medical inspections, as well as helping uh, or pushing the government to establish the, the Department of Public Health um, in 1919. But Parlby's interests um, in public health would ultimately cross uh, paths with eugenic ideas. Um, in the 1920s, she played a prominent role, just like uh, Murphy, in educating the public about the dangers of um, the dangers posed by defectives. Um, and she believed that there were three ways of dealing with, with this uh, danger. And it was either through segregation, through health certificates before marriage, so essentially to ensure that people were fit to marry, and through sterilization, which she viewed as the best um, solution. And of course, this was all discussed in her 1924 address to the United Farm Women uh, membership of Alberta membership. And it was later circulated to the public by the Provincial Department of Health and published in the uh, United Farmer of Alberta um, newspaper. And I also think it's important to point that uh, Parlby's position in government as cabinet minister um, from 1921 to 1935 is important regarding eugenics. Um, not only now that farm women have one of their own in cabinet, 
but they also had a direct connection to the government. Um, and many of its resolutions regarding sexual sterilization um, ended up on the desk of the premier. And um, I would suggest even served as a blueprint for the um, Alberta Sexual Sterilization Act. So Erna, can you tell us a little bit um, more about the Sexual Sterilization Act in Alberta and its impact on the population? Yeah, um, so when Alberta passed the Sexual Sterilization Act in 1928, um, it allowed for creation of a eugenics board. Um, to administer the program. And um, medical superintendents of, of um, Alberta psychiatric institutions were granted by, permission by this act um, to present patients to the board who they thought should be um, sterilized. So earlier in the program, um, these patients primarily um, arrived from the Pinoca Mental Hospital but by the 1950s, um, most of those um, who were being presented to the board um, arrived from the provincial training school in Red Deer. Um, so in order for the procedure to take place, unanimous decision was required um, and initially consent by the patient, parent or guardian um, was required. But in 1937, um, the um, there was an amendment to the Sexual Sterilization Act, which essentially removed the consent clause um, for those deemed to be mentally deficient. Um, so from 1928 until 1972, when the act is um, repealed, the Eugenics Board recommended over 4,700 people to be sterilized. Um, and out of this number, over 2,800 were actually sterilized. So it's pretty significant, yeah. So a lot of these um, ideas that these women had that were good are also intermingled with these eugenics principles. So it's kind of this complicated intermingling of different ideas uh, based on their belief systems and understandings of science and such at the time. Um, so that kind of leads me to this question about what what leads to the downfall of eugenic principles in Canada? Where where do we go from this rise in the 20s and 30s to kind of them becoming passe and old science and not supported anymore? Mm -hmm. So um, we really see a decline, um, kind of eugenic um, ideas start to decline a little bit earlier in some of the other provinces in the maybe in the 1940s. Um, and this is primarily because in the other provinces, they've kind of tried their hand at bringing in eugenic legislation and it doesn't really work. So it's it sort of peters out. Um, but I think after 1945, the most significant um, reason why eugenic policies become discredited um, is because of their association with euthanasia programs that targeted psychiatric patients, among others, um, in Nazi Germany. So th that's kind of the number one um, reason. Um, secondly, there is uh, much more scientific scrutiny of um, eugenics. So um, scientists did start to criticize eugenic ideas in the 1910s, um, and they kind of challenged the eugenicist claims regarding um, the heritability of feeble-mindedness and mental deficiency, arguing that 
Um, these were based on uh, weak research, poor data, and most importantly, a very simplistic understanding of human heredity. Um, essentially, if feeble-mindedness did exist, it would never be wiped out in a single generation. So um, these scientific critiques are then adopted by those who oppose eugenics um, in Canada, particularly Roman Catholics. Um, and in their campaign uh, against um, sterilization, um, Catholics relied partly on these scientific arguments to question um, eugenicists' interpretations of heredity. And because they did this, it helped them kind of reach a wider audience. They were just not just focusing on theological arguments, but also went with kind of a scientific argument to appeal to non-Catholics. Um, we also see that a lot of eugenic organizations um, lose their financial support during this time. So we see a decline there. Um, but interestingly, despite the fact that we see this decline um, in a number of other provinces and actually in, in a number of other countries, um, Alberta's eugenics program um, was slowly um, chugging along in the background. So when, obviously we don't hear about it now, so when did it die in Alberta? So um, in 1972, um, the legislation was repealed. Um, it, it did take some time. Alberta's, so like I was saying, despite the fact that all these other places were um, really kind of decommissioning their eugenic uh, legislation due to various reasons, discrediting of eugenic ideas, insufficient public finances, increasing public scrutiny, um, Alberta's legislation just kind of remained unchallenged. Um, and we think this was because um, there was a strong populist government um, at this time. Um, it, there was very little opposition um, to this. Um, this program kind of operated in the background um, without really being um, in the public view. Um, there was also um, economic growth and prosperity in the province during this period, kind of the post-war period, and not much attention was really being paid to um, to the eugenics program. So it would take a, a change of government in 1972 to repeal um, the Sexual Sterilization Act. And they did that primarily for two reasons. Um, one, it was based on outdated medical science. And more importantly, two, they viewed it as a violation of, of human rights. Is there a line to be drawn to, I know that it's not as overt, possibly today, and you may counter mm -hmm. that, but is there something today that we can kind of look at and say, you know, is it totally gone or is there a, has it evolved into something else that, uh, you know, we could be looking at and say, you know, this kind of mirrors those sorts of principles? I think there would be a number of scholars who would argue and um, myself as well that um, eugenics never fully disappeared. It was just repackaged. Um, so we often talk about new genics. Um, so we talk about that we still have, for instance, um, you know, um, prenatal testing to, to screen for certain diseases, right? Um, we still um, want people to undergo genetic counseling if they do carry certain genetic diseases. 
So the, those ideas kind of still exist, although not in the same way as they did, um, you know, back uh, back in the day. And you could argue, um, you know, we always talk about like designer babies and um, and whether or not in the future people will be able to choose, um, you know, like the eye color of their children or, or something like that. Yeah. So I don't think those ideas completely disappeared. They're just different now. And I think um, a number of um, disability scholars uh, would suggest that some of that stuff is still around. Yeah. Thanks, Erna, for for you know coming on and 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 having this conversation. It's it's a hard one to have, but we've talked about here at the park before of you know not always um, it's not always easy to talk about history, and it's uh, one of those things that we shouldn't shy away from and that we should know about. So. I agree completely. I think it's, I think it's important that we, I mean, in, in regards to, uh, to the famous five, I think, I think it's certainly important that we discuss kind of the totality of, of their careers, um, in, including their achievements, but also, you know, the, the shortcomings and, and their views on some of these um, controversial policies and programs. So, Yeah. Yeah, we, we want to make sure that we're always exploring kind of that big totality of people being people. They're not exactly. Yeah, yeah. people are human. We we all make mistakes or we all think things that we learn about later. We're not correct. So exactly. Yeah. yeah. Thank so you so much for coming it. to talk. Yeah, thank you guys so much for inviting me. Thanks, Erna.